Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 37. My name's DK. It's great to have you along listening to us here. Check us out on creativewelly.com. It's a video podcast, but obviously you're happy to listen to the audio version of the podcast. We have two amazing people again here today. We have Kimberly Gilmore, Chief People Officer at Groove, and Joe Harawira, Co-Founder and Managing Director of Y Manuka. Both incredible humans in their own right very different backgrounds very different approaches to life very different disciplines as well coming together to have courageous conversations with bold humans which is the tagline of creative Valley. before we get into it and press play big shout out to john o'tucker over at empire films the creative producer behind this he's the man behind the edit and also the production as well behind the cameras essentially and also big thanks to flash dog studio and david there for allowing us to film there Enjoy this episode, I know you will, and I'll be back right at the end of it. So who are your favourite writers? Interesting way to start. Oh, ladies first. Ah, I love that. <laughs> Buy some more time. Yeah, yeah, um, I've just picked up Celeste Ning's new book, okay. which is called Missing ha- Our Missing Hearts. It's okay. a dystopian, it's a fiction dystopian, kind of like Handmaid's Tale, Ish could okay. kind of happen in this world. Mm. And have you read much of their I've, stuff before? I've read a couple it? of. I, th- I think she's only got a few books, and I've got okay. both of them. But cool. yeah, just just a, it's easy to read, very well written, makes you think. We like that. Yeah, it's a good Sunday read. Okay, cool. Um, lately I've been getting into like biographies, but if I was thinking about a writer, um, the last book that I actually read um, was is it Pablo? Uh, the Alchemist. Pablo Neruda. Yeah, some Pablo Neruda. Uh, no, it's C begins Coelho with C. Coelho? Oh, yeah. that one. Yeah, I'm probably mangling his name yeah, badly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I went a different route, but okay. So, yeah, I thought that was what did you get out of that? Um, I got that I need to read it again because there's so many different <laughs> meanings to it. Yeah. Um, but essentially, what I took away from it was that um, everything that you need to, I guess, succeed in life and whatever it is you want to do, is within you. Yeah. That, that's what I took away. But honestly, I needed to read it again mm. because there's so many messages yeah. in it. That's the beauty of when you find a good writer. Yeah. There's layers. Absolutely. You know, yeah. And you're like, I've got to read that again. Yep. And it's, it's quite cool. short, right? It's quite yeah. an easy, nice read. Yeah, it's read. a good read. Yeah. 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 Even better. Yeah. yeah. How I about mem- you? Yeah, I remember reading uh, a couple of years ago, again, going back to reading something again, yeah. uh, Victor Frankl's mm. Man's Search for mm-hmm. Meaning, yeah. which is a heavy as hell book, right? But... You have to revisit at some point in your life just to again digest it because it's harrowing. Mm. It's the, the, have you read it? Yeah. All no. oh, right. This uh, a guy who was in the basically the the camps uh, the uh, during uh, Auschwitz and oh, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, through the World War Two, and his approach to surviving that psychologically. Yep. yep. And what he picked up from that uh, essentially is basically man's human's search mm. for meaning is all about purpose. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you can face the most harrowing situations in your life if yeah. you have a certain purpose to yeah. it. Um, and it's just a tragic read from a perspectivist literally mm. in, in the most harrowing circumstances you ever want to consider, but yeah. you come out feeling so hopeful yeah, totally. of the readers. There did he go in as a psychologist or did he read? He was already a doctor, I think. Doctor, yeah. But I don't know if he was a psychologist, yeah. but I know he was a doctor. That's why he kind of had esteemed position mm. in the camp yep. because you know he was looking after other people there um, but oh. I don't know if he was a psychologist mm. at that point what was the name of the book Vic- Victor Frankl oh, 
different cool. Yeah. So I read one uh, recently. It was the the happiest man on earth. Um, okay. Same thing. Uh, a, a guy who spent his um, about six years in, in the concentration camp and yeah. lost his family in that. And yeah, through the the horrors that um, he experienced, it was um, him being able to find joy and things that he was grateful for to mm. enable him to get through. Coming out the other side, he had built up this. A level of resilience where nothing could phase him as a result of mm. going through that. So the smallest things within a concentration camp yeah. could be enough to keep your life, sort of thing. That's intense, isn't it? Yeah. So let's linger on those points. But resilience and joy—what gives you joy? Um, working on our on our business at the mm. moment, my yeah. manager. Yeah, gives me joy, gives me energy. I wake up every day ready to go. Yeah, I guess it's. It's easy though when your when your house is on the line as well, so you don't lack motivation. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. But just love the whole nation, of, uh, the whole notion. Sorry, of of putting everything on the line and, and yeah. backing something that you believe in. What's the elevator pitch for the business at the moment? Um, so uh, Wymanica is, is a premium non-alcoholic beverage. Uh, it's made by infusing manuka honey with lemon juice and sparkling water, no artificial flavors or colors. Mm. All locally made, all natural. That's pretty awesome. And what's the? How long has it been going? And what's the scale and where you're at with it? Uh, so we've been trading now for just over two years. Um, we had the most surreal launch to market and that was securing a supply agreement to the America's Cup in 2020. So we made the product in um, lockdown 2020 and coming out of that we became a supplier to America's Cup. <laughs> and off the back of that, um, you know, we've managed to secure some kind of premium partnerships across New Zealand. Um, we've recently started exporting to Tokyo and the uptake there has been really positive. Um, the goal right now, though, is to get into as many sort of supermarkets as we can to sort of get the volumes up and right. build the profile essentially to, to fuel our export aspirations. That's fantastic. Now, you mentioned there the, the extreme kind of launch experience that you had. Yeah. Like, not a lot of people can say they've launched something and within like six months, you know, supplying the, 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 <laughs> the premier, shall we say, you know, ex, uh, yachting experience in the world, right? Yeah. Like, how did that happen, that connection? Yeah, I think it was great timing, um, bit of luck. And, <laughs> um, you know, when I look back, I think we just, uh, we had what they needed to showcase New Zealand. So, mm. um, yeah, we made it throughout lockdown because um, that sort of gave us the time and space to, yeah. to create this non-alcoholic beverage. We weren't happy with um, current products on the market, so we decided to, to make something that, Firstly, enabled myself and my two good friends to stay more connected. Um, secondly, we wanted to, to represent sort of the finest of New Zealand. Um, and thirdly, we wanted to kind of weave in sort of our Māori culture. And so when we managed to do that, um, one of our mentors sent through an expression of interest for the America's Cup. And all he said in the email was, it's a bit too early for you boys, but this is an example of the opportunities that are out there. We had a look through the form and, and the requirements and we were like, Actually, we meet all of these. Like they were looking up, looking for brands that were like local, that celebrated New Zealand, that mm. had strong values aligned to the to the regatta. So we just threw our name in the hat, and then yeah, they selected six beverage brands to represent New Zealand at the race. Four were alcoholic and uh, two non-alcoholic, and there was us and a little company called Coke. So it was. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> That's pretty awesome, right? Yeah, yeah. It was. We still buzz out when we talk about it now. So scary as well. I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was because like we none of us came from the beverage yeah. <laughs> industry, or yeah, and you know none of, none of us have been like sort of full-on business owners either. Yeah. So I mean, to launch 
at that event and hopefully not to have let people down and to do our best for New Zealand as well as the product kind of a thing. Where was the product at at that stage? Was it matured? Was it kind of what I see in front of me Mm. now or was it... Uh, I'd like to say that we had the finished product <laughs> when we pitched, but we didn't. And I don't, yeah, okay. I don't know how the people at the Food and Beverage team at America's Cup are going to uh, respond to that. But um, mm. we hadn't actually finished the, the product. Um, so they backed on our um, story. Um, they backed on uh, what the product sort of stood for. Mm. Um, and then um, yeah, we, we produced going into the, <laughs> to the race. That's Amazing. crazy, right? That's a great story. <laughs> and is. now Japan. What made you choose Japan? Yeah, it came probably um, a bit too soon for us, but um, because we were thinking of hitting the export market in like kind of three years, sort of thing. We thought that'll be mm. that's, that, that'll be going well, but we managed to strike up a relationship with a local woman here. Her name's Mayu Suzuki, and she's based in Wellington, and so she has an online store that she set up with her family. So she's Japanese, and um, they export premium sort of manuka honey and avocado oil to a very niche customer group in um, in Tokyo. And we've just been um, meeting with Mayu over the last kind of sort of six months before we started exporting with them. But for us, sort of two things stood out, and it comes back to sort of the values uh, around Waimanaka too, is that Mayu said to us that this is about the long term. You know, this is not like a a get-rich sort of Mm. quick scheme. And we've met loads of people up to that point who have said, let's do this, let's do that, you can make this, you can make that. That doesn't really resonate Mm. with us. Mayu said this is about the long term, and it's about the relationship. And so for us, that's, that, that was the, um, the deal maker, mm. I guess. So we're really happy with how things are going in Tokyo. It's a small trial at the moment, mm. but there's huge potential. Totally. Lots of people, huge population. Yeah, yeah. And New and Zealand's got a good reputation in that market. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and there's so many things about New Zealand that Japanese people love, like yeah. not only the manuka honey, but also sort of the New Zealand story, yeah. even the cultural dynamic as well. There's a lot of sort of synergies there. So cool. we're really lucky to have a great partner and to be focused on the long term. Have you been over? Not yet. We're planning on going over in March next year awesome. with Mayu to meet the team over there. So, cool. yeah, pretty excited for that. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Because Mayu's been on Creative One. Oh, yeah. And uh, I know that we have that connection as yeah. well with Mayu. And the literacy of the Japanese market when it comes to Manuka honey as well, and the health mm. properties around mm. it, yeah. that's a massive thing for them out there, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm like, um, I said earlier about sort of timing-wise, I think we've sort of hit the market at the right time with this particular product because mm. coming off the back of COVID, there's like a wellness, mm-hmm. well-being, there's an mm. elevated importance kind of a thing where people want to feel healthier and make better choices, right. and that kind of leans into the Absolutely. sort of work that you're doing within Groove. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a great time, great yeah. time to be coming into it, and in the non-alcoholic piece as well. People making different decisions around drinking, yeah. getting a little bit more traction. Yeah, yeah. 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 So the question was joy. What brings you joy? Mm-hmm. Trail running brings me joy. Running okay. in the bush, being away from it all. No awesome. phone, no sounds, just nature and little sound of my feet hitting the ground. <laughs> <laughs> we went out this morning, it wasn't in the bush, but around the waterfront. Okay, yeah. well, this is nice, right? Yeah. It's, um, Wellington waterfront. Yeah, Wellington waterfront. So pretty much anything out in nature brings Tundles. me joy. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to, hard to be, I always come back feeling completely rejuvenated and connected mm. to myself and yeah. connected to the people I'm going with. And sure. yeah, yeah it's, um, it's a big, big part of my life. 
was tough, the Auckland lockdown. Were you in Auckland last year for the... No. Yeah, I, I felt your pain from a distance. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, through that lockdown was my partner and I decided not to drink alcohol this year yeah. on the back of the lockdown, which was four months at home every day, two kids. Um, wow. So yeah. we, every, the, the, the thing that, sadly, that brought us a little bit of joy during the lockdown was having five o'clock and have a little drink. Yeah. And then gotcha. we got yeah. to the end of the year and we thought, hey... This is not good. This is not good where this can kind of take you. So um, we weren't drinking a lot, but it was just really regular. And so we made the decision to take the year off. So we're 10 months in now to, wow. to that. And having you know options like Waimanuka is amazing because you get pretty sick of sparkling water and yeah. Yeah. really sugary drinks. So you don't really want to just drink all your calories. So yeah, good point. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I was going to say yeah. I know. I know non-alcoholic beverage potentially that you could like so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after 10 months like yeah. do you yeah. miss it or? I, I missed it quite a bit initially and I think yeah. there were I wanted to do it for 12 months because I thought if I do it for one yeah. you're kind of hanging out for the month to be over to go back to how you were before yeah. and I wanted to just shift some habits yeah. so um, of course we've had a lot of Great things happened during the year. I got engaged. Don't celebrate oh, with champagne. Congrats. Had, thank you. <laughs> had some bad things happen as well, and that's often when you'll have a drink. So getting yeah, through those moments without having alcohol. Yeah. And um, it's been a super interesting experience. I did it primarily for health, so um, my sleep gets really disrupted from um, drinking. Even one drink will affect my sleep. So yeah. I thought, just, what will it be like if I don't drink for a year? Like How much better will I feel in the morning? And how much more can I give for work and for my family and yeah. all the different parts of my life? And I mean, I've had my 20, so I don't really, <laughs> don't really need to like, feel like I've missed out on anything. And yeah. it's just, yeah, it's, it's brought a real depth to our mm. relationship as well, which has been nice. So It's amazing. Yeah. It's really good to hear. Yeah. And yourself, you... I've never really been big on um, yeah. drinking alcohol and same reason I like to um, sort of get out in nature yeah. the next thing and I like to be sort of at my best mm. most days and I know that uh, when I do drink alcohol I'm kind of not so mm. for me kind of the, the, the cons sort of outweigh sort of the pros of drinking so I've never yeah. really been uh, a big drinker. You know my background, I'm like ex-military as well which is yeah. kind of notorious something for, um, for alcohol but uh, Again, I was, wasn't a big drinker in the military yeah. either. So. Did you find that challenging? Because obviously the culture in New Zealand is one of binge Absolutely. drinking. Yeah. Since I've been here, is people go out to get drunk. Yeah. Rather than going out and, mm. in yeah. Europe, mm. you go out to connect with people. And there might be alcohol, there might not be. Mm. But people here go out to get drunk. Yeah. Very much like in the UK. Yeah. Did that, was that quite challenging then? If you yeah, it was. And it's pretty scary, you know. I remember in my undergrad studies, two, this is 2005, we did some research on um, binge drinking in New Zealand. Mm. And back in 2005, New Zealanders were spending $11 million every day mm -hmm. on average on alcohol. That was so okay. five. So, um, yeah, it's pretty scary when you're talking about those sorts of numbers and mm. the impact that it has on yeah. a population. Um, it was uh, more challenging, I would say, when I was younger, mm. like yeah. sort of opting out of, of drinking. Um, but as you get older, people kind of respect your decisions, and when they figure out you can become like be their sober driver and look after them, right. that's even There's better. Right, so you know? yeah. <laughs> there. And yeah. once people have had a couple of drinks, no one really notices whether you are or aren't drinking anyway, yeah. right? So yeah. yeah, once you get past that, yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah. But going back to um, also the culture around drinking and rugby, because yep. that's one of your day jobs, yeah. inverted commas, is yeah. working with the All Blacks and uh, New Zealand rugby and things like that. How do you see that kind of is there a, uh, a, I make an assumption here in New mm. Zealand, but it's kind of a judgment as well, based in coming from Wales, it's a huge drinking culture yeah. around mm. the rugby scene. Yeah. And I see that here as well in New Zealand a little bit. Yeah. So obviously with 
your specific role within New Zealand rugby, mm-hmm, which yeah. is injury prevention as well. Yeah, injury prevention, well-being. So yeah, kind of yeah. talk to us about like how did you get into that and how you see that kind of also impacting wider things going on in the world at the moment. Yeah, well, I've always been fascinated with sort of health and fitness and, and wellness. So after sort of uh, doing the things that I wanted to achieve in the military, I went to university and mm. studied undergrad in sort of sports science. And then off the back of that, I managed to um, get a uh, postgrad job with um, ACC, looking after their sort of national sports injury prevention programs. Yeah. And that enabled me to, to network and meet people within the sports field. And so then coming out of um, that role, um, I ended up working for the NRL, so Rugby League mm. in the sort of athlete wellbeing space for three years yeah. um, before um, before jumping ship to, to New Zealand rugby and, and working in rugby within a similar sort of field. So it was out of pure interest around sort of health and fitness and then it was recognising a need um, around, particularly with regards to sort of the, the holistic approach, well-being, the, the gap that existed within those sports and uh, the more sports needed to do. And to your point around kind of the drinking culture within rugby, it's, it's a reflection of society. Yeah. Um, but I think the key is rugby's got the opportunity in terms of the platform to change things for the better. And it's going to take time, right? But um, I think there is a lot of change happening. Um, and if you look at kind of the response to it's the, the women's, um, the Rugby World Cup that's on right now, yeah. huge profile. Mm. And like 20 years ago, this you know wouldn't really been talked about, but mm. now it's like leading the, the top of the sports news and things like that. So I think change is happening and it's needed. Probably yeah. could be a whole lot quicker, mm-hmm. but it, it will happen. Mm. So when it's injury prevention and well-being, yeah. what does that look like? Um, so in terms of injury prevention, it's about sort of making sure that the players, um, uh, I guess, fit mentally and physically to play the game, to be in their position, um, and in the unfortunate sort of um, event that they do get injured, then they're managed appropriately. So New Zealand Rugby works really closely with ACC in terms of looking after um, injured players um, and ensuring that they can return to ACE independence and then playing on the field. Um, within sort of the, the time frame that's right for them. And then the whole sort of um, well-being sort of side of things or even wellness, that, that's speaking more towards kind of the mental health sort of thing, mm-hmm. and um, which is a big issue again across mm-hmm. society. Um, so it's about kind of, um, again, rugby just using its influence to be able to educate players. Um, because one of the things that I guess within sport, particularly high profile sport, easy for I guess, young players to identify themselves as being like a player and being basing all of their self-worth as a player and that becoming their identity mm. but they're actually a person first and these are their values and mm. these are their families this is their communities so it's about making sure that they get some sort of balance and mm. then they um, also sort of celebrate their own kind of individual cultures because that's a um, that, that gives them sort of some resilience, I guess, yeah. to, to cope with some of the pressures that come with being a sort of high profile player. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Which leads nicely into what you do for a mm. living, right? Yeah. The wellness side yep. and well-being. Yeah. So how, what's your pitch in terms of what you do? Yeah, so I work rugby? for Groove, yeah. which is a company set up by Sir John Kuh and, and Adam Clark um, to help workplaces embed a culture of well-being within mm. within the workspace. Um, and we focus on three layers. So we, we don't just focus on individual well-being, which lots of programs do, which is giving people the tools. It's not yoga and fruit bowls, although workplaces obviously have those. <laughs> so we help with individual well-being. We um, focus on leaders because that's where so much of your relationship and so much influence in terms of an individual's well-being is what their team and what their leader is like and how their leaders and co-workers respond when 
challenges happen. And then finally, we focus on the organisational level, so looking at policies, um, benefits, practices that organisations can bring in to uh, really support the well-being of their people. So it's not just a, mm. it's not just a focus here. It's you know, yeah. if an individual's not well, it's probably not just something going on for them, it's the workplace, it's things at home, it's all sorts of other factors and um, we want to make sure that the culture and the places where people are working are really, really good for their well-being. It's just a systemic approach. It is, it is a systemic. An individual and it takes reason. a while too, it takes, it's right. not something that just happens really quickly and um, mm. I mean there's some really good shifts. Covid in a way was really helpful for us because the light really got shone on well-being and yeah. um, it gave us the opportunity to work with lots of really amazing customers in New Zealand and Australia and a couple in the US which has been really great. Okay. Now we've got some good case studies about how it can work and yeah and we do it ourselves so um, part of my role actually is to focus on how we uh, use our own products and services to make sure that we are walking the talk and yeah. leading the way uh, by having a really really strong cultural well-being. Well, how many organisations are you working with? We've got uh, just under 70. Wow. Yeah. How big is your, your workforce? We've got 45 people now. So oh, we grew okay. uh, on kind of second half of last year, we doubled the size of the team, and then this year we're really focused on just, wow. yeah. 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 <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, growing during COVID. I started during COVID, um, as, yes, in, as yeah. did lots of people. So even just the experience of coming into yeah. a new, new organisation yeah. and, and trying to get up to speed and trying to meet people and make yeah. connections and. Mm. Um, not spend all day on Zoom like so many of us had to during that time. So you've been here a year now? A year, yeah. yeah as Chief People yes, Officer? Yes, Chief People Officer. Yes. What does that do? What, what does that mean? <laughs> Chief People Officer? Yeah, yeah, well the great thing about it, I, I actually stepped way out of HR. Um, uh, would have been probably five years ago. I'd been doing HR for a 10 years of my life then and I just thought I don't want to do this anymore I didn't okay. feel like it wasn't giving me much back I was burnt out I'd been through restructure processes and kind of a lot of the hard stuff of yeah. HR so I took some time out um, started studying I actually did nutrition I thought yeah. oh, the angle I want to go down is well-being and started doing a nutrition qualification and very quickly it became clear to me that nutrition is not it's not just the answer it's much bigger than that so I switched direction and then uh, enrolled in a um, health psychology master's program, which I'm still in the middle of doing at the moment, um, which is a much more holistic idea around well-being. And then uh, one of the one of the papers and modules I did was workplace well-being and kind of all the bits falling into place. I thought, oh, maybe I can take what I've been doing for the last 10 years and this new knowledge that I'm learning and this passion that's building to um, really help workplaces support well-being for their people. And I, w I didn't start at Groove. I started at a company called Unique, where I met the CEO, and yep. he asked about you know, how I wanted to run this, and I told him that I cared very much about making sure that people were able to thrive in work, yeah. in their communities, and at home, and yeah. he gave me real leeway to be able to do that. So. Well, Unique is a, a unique yeah. thing as well, yeah. so tell us just a little bit about Unique. Yeah, so, so Unique is a digital human platform, so so how I met um, Groove was because we, we made a digital JK for uh, the Groove, the Groove uh, wasn't meant to meet at the time, but the Groove mm. business, and um, yeah, Unique does digital humans, which helps organisations create this emotional connection with customers yeah. at scale in a way that you can't do with a chatbot or with a website. Yeah. So. So these are for app-based or website-based yeah. interactions yes. for services? Just, or, yeah, services. Yeah. It might be customer service. It might be it's, it's, there's some health use cases where it's almost like a triage or um, okay. filling in a form for especially older people who don't like typing information into a form. It, it's a conversation and it can capture the information and, and pass it on to the right people. I remember um, Sir JK talking about that at maybe about three or four years ago. Oh, yeah, that would have been about the timing. Yeah, yeah. 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 
yeah, so amazing to see it come to fruition. Yeah. 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 We're actually using, uh, in New Zealand rugby, they're using technology as well, AI, to educate players sort of mm. a thing, particularly around injury prevention. Mm. So like they have, okay. they have a character that, that sort of helps sort of young rugby players mould their mouth guard, for example. Right, kind of okay. Thing, you know? Have you got your mouth guard sort of for this weekend, that type of thing. Just a different way to engage, yeah. Yeah, recognising sort of the changing consumer needs. Yeah. yeah, and probably portable as well because it'll yeah. be on a device versus a, a printout right. of a hand sheet saying how to do what you just described, mm. yeah. right? Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a bit more intuitive, but yeah. mobile. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I, I love what you were saying before around kind of um, it's systemic and how everything's mm. so interconnected. Absolutely. Like you can't sort of focus on addressing one problem without considering sort of like yeah. you know, everything else within Absolutely. that person's life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're all humans. We all bring our own stuff every yeah. day to what we do, and that's mm. it's very foolish to think that someone mm. at work is not, you know, carrying this other stuff with them. And you know, if, if you if you have to leave it at the door, which is so, I don't know, nineteen ninety. Yeah, sometimes um, <laughs> it's so hard to do. Let's be honest. It's really hard to do, and sometimes all you want is just a bit of acknowledgement that there's yeah. some other stuff going on in your life. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and space. In space, yeah. yeah. And, and caring, you know, yeah. someone asking you if you're okay and yeah, actually yeah. giving a shit when you give an answer. Yeah. yeah. And being skilled to be able to respond. That's one of the things that we do is helping leaders and helping co-workers have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. How, do, how does that manifest? Because I know Groove is, is a multi-layered service. Yeah. So it's got an app. There's an app, there's an online module platform, which is an e-learning component. Right. Um, and then we run a lot of live, live yeah. being either virtual or in-person webinars with um, Dr. Good. Fiona Crichton, who's our clinical expert, and JK. Um, and they work with customers and just our general, uh, so sometimes even people who are interested in Groove and just help, help make those conversations less scary. Yeah. Because, mm. yeah, no one wants to, no, some people don't ask the question because they don't know how to respond when the answer comes back. Yeah, so trying to just break that down. What's kind of the end goal for Groove? Is it scale or is it? It's scale. We want to help a hundred million people with their daily mental well-being and save a hundred thousand lives. So there's still um, we're not a suicide prevention program. Right. We but we aim to be so far upstream that we're helping with well-being before things get to that crisis point. Yeah. So with those numbers, though, you're going to have to go offshore. Right. Exactly. Yeah, we've only There's got only five million, million here. Even if we helped every single person <laughs> in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So our plan at the moment. So we have New Zealand and Australia. After right. that, we are looking at the US, um, and we're ta- we're exploring some opportunities in the UK later this year. But and we're Europe, I would imagine. As yeah, well. yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Other other countries. Sorry. Oh, go on. Other countries similar um, in terms of sort of wellness and where they're at with like. Like depression and suicide rates and those I types of things. I think a lot are. are. Yeah, yeah, a lot Developed are. countries. Are. Developed yeah. countries, exactly. I mean, all of the countries that we've just talked about have similar challenges yeah, to right. New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand has really poor um, mental health yeah. statistics and suicide statistics. But, yeah, I think all countries are struggling with that and on the back of COVID and how hard those these times have been for so many people. Yeah. 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 So it's got, gotten worse since COVID coming out. Well, of COVID. Yeah. I mean, the official statistics this week said things had gotten better. But oh, really? Yeah, mm. on so- the suicide, the official release last week, I think it was. Oh, yes, I saw that. Although we're still leading the world in the OECD of young people killing themselves, yeah. apparently, yeah. as a developed nation. Yeah. And you're like, what the hell? Yeah. yeah. But where do you see then um, Groove maximising itself in terms of, you said there's three layers to the services, are you getting more traction with one at the moment? 
or you being open to we're being open so um what we know is that People love the live sessions. There's something. Right. There's something about it's. It's the energy that people bring to a live conversation. Um, it's. I think too the fact that you've committed that time rather than it being another thing to check off on your to-do list along yeah. with many other things. So we know that we get very good engagement with live sessions. The modules are really great for either following up, um, refreshing yourself on information, um, uh, yeah, going a little bit deeper on a particular topic. But I think the live sessions for now are the way, and when I say live, it could just be on you know, video. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah. We, we're doing that at scale at the moment in that we have, our premium customers have live sessions just with their own organization and our smaller customers join live sessions with any other customer that wants to join. So it'll be a okay. Zoom call. Anyone who is a customer of group can join that Zoom call. And um, so it's quite cool because you also create a community, which is yeah. not just your own workplace and you can share ideas and yeah, yeah, learn from each other that way. Are there any trends that, uh, you know, it's only been going for a couple of years, growth, yeah. essentially, uh, as a service. Have, have there been trends that have been uncovered through the service offering that gone, oh, we're going to have to change our direction mm. a little bit? Because we didn't understand that was mm. the issue. Yeah. Has there been anything like that? Any uh, discovery, I suppose? Yeah. One of the, well, there's a couple of things that we've gone much deeper on, um, probably than we expected to beyond our core yeah. offering, which is one is around psychological safety. So making sure that we're creating an environment where people feel that they can be themselves, that they have a voice yeah. and that they're accepted for who they are. And so yeah. we've started building that into our product offering as well and helping leaders and helping organisations create the practices that provide that to their people. Um, and burnout is yeah. really big. Burnout is really, really big. And we're not immune, you know, lots of people on our team run up to the edge there sometimes. So mm. I think when, and I guess when you're really passionate about what you do yeah. as well, you really push through uh, through harder than you might otherwise do. So you, yeah. You, yeah. you might arrive at burnout without really knowing how you've got in there. Yeah. What, what are the indicators of burnout? Yeah, they are, um, I'm going to be I'm really <laughs> testing me now, but the, the kind of exhaustion, real mental exhaustion, um, mm. reduced efficacy in what you're doing. So you, you actually are performing less well than you normally would, which is awful. Um, and then um, sometimes it's things like cynicism, which you didn't have before. Mm. So some of them are quite subtle, quite subtle shifts. Are they things that you wouldn't recognise yourself as much as other people go, oh, they used to be like that, or they used to be much more efficient. Yeah, and stuff like that. I, I think there's definitely an aspect of that. It's, and it can be hard to raise yeah. if you know someone's struggling and they're not performing. Like, How do you have that conversation in a caring way, which is yeah. one of the things that we support people with doing as well. Um, but when, we, when people watch the webinar or listen to one of these live sessions, they can often recognise it in themselves. And I think it's the things, the cynicism is something that I've heard people raise a few times. It's like, oh, that's not normally me. And that's how I'm feeling at the moment. And mm. when I think about these other symptoms, it can kind of form a, fi a picture of burnout happening. Fascinating. Yeah. I suppose burnout would be a physical burnout in the New Zealand rugby mm. context as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, physical, um, mental, emotional. Right. All of it's connected, right? Mm. So, yeah. And um, for myself, like I can, I can feel myself with um, Waimanuka. If things become too much, I, I sort of protect certain aspects of my life. So, mm. uh, getting out in nature, making sure I get quality sleep as much as I can, and it's consistent. Um, eating well, those types of things. Yeah. So, if you can protect, yeah. kind of those sorts of things to manage your energy and that's essentially what it's about is managing your mm. sort of energy then it puts you in good stead but first you've got to have the self-awareness exactly <laughs> to make change. yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we work with people to help them create we call it a six pillar plan so we have six pillars of well-being and now i'm going to be tested to remember them but it's do move connect chill um 
probably eat into it. No, eat is not. It's not a pillar. Oh. It's a. It's supporting, oh, but it's yeah. not a pillar. Um, and we know that if people do, you know, some things around each of those six pillars every day, and you've just talked about what they are for you, yeah. it helps protect you against burnout, particularly. Yeah. 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 And if you can just make a little bit of time for even just one of those things, maybe the most impactful thing for you, it really, really helps. Yeah, totally. Because like, the days of the week when you're a in startup mode and you're a business owner, there's yeah. no such thing as weekends. Yeah. Like everything, yeah. everything's a, every day's a Monday. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's never go, not go, go, anything right? to do. But um, have you felt that? Yeah, yeah, big time. Overwhelmed at times. Yeah, yeah, and as we've continued to grow, so I'm still the only sort of full-time employee in the business at the moment. So wearing mm. multiple hats, um, but then like when you get out and sort of make time to get out of nature, it sort of like um, refocuses you and enables you to to really sort of pinpoint the key things that are going to move the business and, and just target those because you can just spread yourself way too thin. Yeah. So everything's important, but what's critical? What are the two to three things uh, that are critical that need to get done this day? Yeah, so. How did you decide how to split up the responsibilities amongst the three of you originally? Um, we just sort of chose different roles and kind of just fell into it and mm -hmm. then sort of we're... Um, kind of finding our feet and we're actually down to two now so we've gone from three Māori boys to two. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the guys he, he just had different priorities and, and being in yeah. business wasn't for him, he yeah. wanted to sort of focus on his, his own career so there's just two of us now. Okay. Um, uh, the other, my other business partner he's still working full time as a, as a teacher um, but what he does is he looks after distribution because oh, yeah. um, that's his wife's sort of um, job as well so it makes sense for him mm. to, to look after that aspect of the business and then I just sort of... Um, mm. Do the other stuff. Yeah, just a couple of things. Everything else yeah. in between, <laughs> yeah. apart from distribution. <laughs> yeah. Everything else. Wow. Yeah. And what's the goal? What's the end goal for Wai Manuka? Is it? We want to. We want to take it global. So yeah, right from day one, we always. Um, so our, I guess our, our brand statement is Hitanga no Aotearoa, which mm. translated means a precious gift from New Zealand. Mm. So for us, we always had this goal of taking the finest of New Zealand and celebrating it on the world stage. Mm. We'd like to think that Waimanuka is available in almost every country around the world, and it's essentially yeah. like a, a piece of New Zealand. So it's a tongue, it's, it's a gift. and yeah. Um, So yeah, global is, is definitely where we want to be yeah. eventually. What, what's the support that you found in that goal with institutions like NZTA, NZTE, yeah. or whatever? Yeah. All, the, all the ones, right? Have you yeah. had some good support around Yeah, that? amazing. You know, I've got to yeah. say uh, NZTE, Kia, um, even our bank, they've been like really supportive of what we're trying to do. And I think everyone sort of gravitates to, to the story of these three friends yeah. making mm. this something, uh, that this product that's healthy and that tells a good story. Mm. Um, there's a, like a, a degree, I guess, of authenticity that people want to sort of gravitate towards and I think that's been like a, um, a defining factor in, in bringing the right people around us at the right yeah. time. And, and an example would be we, um, we have an advisory board that we meet with uh, every month and our advisory board is made of like strategic consultants from NZTE who are people that are experts in their field at a global level who like cost an arm and a leg to do anything mm -hmm. but they support us and help us for free because you know they just want to be a part of this yeah, story and they don't want to see us I guess make the same mistakes that they might have made yeah. throughout their careers so it's having the right people around you at the right time has, has been phenomenal like, we would not be where we are today if it with all these sorts of connections um, didn't happen imagine I was one of your six that Pillars has got to be networked, right? <laughs> Maybe be, around the connect, yeah. Yeah, connecting yeah. with not just family and friends, but yeah. a wider network to support you. But I'm also interested in both your organisation's value sets. You, yeah. you hinted at it mm. there. You mentioned it in terms of, you know, 
being the founders and stuff. But in terms of Groove, what would you say that the value set, like how important was the founders yeah. to introduce, not just obviously the business plan and everything, why they're doing it, but their values in, in doing it, I suppose? Or yeah, well, it? the values that we have now have yeah. been in place since the very beginning when there were right. only a small handful of people. And I think it is, like I love that you've already articulated those and they're so clear to your yeah. business. Um, we um, we just went through a process recently of refreshing our values, um, which was really an interesting exercise. And so our, we've got four. They are walk our talk, um, which is super important. Do what you said you'd do. We know that if we want to make the impact that we aspire to on the world stage, we need to follow through for ourselves, for each other and for our customers. So do what you said you do is really important. Um, amplify others. And the last one is agree to disagree and commit, which is which is, can be quite a tough one to live, oh, but it's a, it's a process. It's a process designed for us to get the best outcome and make sure we get everybody's voices heard, but also push through that cultural uh, quality <laughs> that many of us have, which is we don't like to disagree with other people, yeah, and yeah. especially if it's you know, someone in a position of power. So we, uh, this is one of the things that we're focusing on at the moment is how do, we, how do we support people to do that? How do we respond when someone disagrees with us mm. so that it's welcoming of different points of view? Yep. How... Like that's a literacy right there, right? Absolutely. That's a skill. It's that's a skill. also a nuance yeah. around language yeah. and kind of energy as well. Yeah. yeah. Like how do you, have you got like a literally a, a module of yeah. teaching people how to do that? We do for ourselves. We right. we, we haven't we haven't uh, launched it with our team, but we've we've run these workshops with some customers. Funnily enough, before we've done it with ourselves, but around that process of yeah. how, how do you agree to disagree and commit? And coming back to the other one around psychological safety, that's just a foundation. You, know, you absolutely have to have a strong culture of psychological safety to enable this to happen. But even things like agree to disagree and commit is decide at the very beginning who's the decision maker so that you're not just having this endless conversation okay. and empower that person to make the decision themselves so even if their boss disagrees with them it is their decision to make and mm. they know that from the very very beginning and then it becomes their role to help bring out these different views um, and take them on board and then make a decision and the last part which is really important is if even if you disagree if you've had the opportunity to be heard yep. and say what you think you still get on board you don't there's no back channel about it it's oh, like right, okay. you get behind the decision and you make it a success that could be tough i could imagine absolutely yeah, which is why the process if the decision you're disagreeing with yeah. is a value-based one right. rather than just an opinion right. or a strategic idea that you might have yeah how do you manage that yeah then? exactly that's that's, that's the really the really tough part and i think it's partly it's explaining why so the person who's making the decision makes the decision yeah. and then explains why that decision was made and absolutely there's going to there's gonna be times where each of us don't like the decision that was made, <laughs> mm, yeah. but we accept that the person who made it made it for the best, you know, the best reasons and for the you know the benefit of the business as a whole. So one of the challenges we had, um, I remember thinking back to sort of well-being when I was with the NRL, particularly working with um, young uh, Pacifica players. So there was a um, so these players are typically transitioning into the Australian NRL pathway and going over to Australia at sort of 16, 17. Um, it was the cultural differences and also the power imbalance. So mm -hmm. working with these kids to, I guess, be more assertive and to ask the question mm -hmm. honestly. Like mm -hmm. if you went into an Australian sort of... Um, professional rugby league system as a 17 year old and someone came up to you, an Australian came up to you and said, are you okay, is everything all right? You're just gonna say, yeah, everything's fine and everything <laughs> might not be fine. So one of the challenges for us was um, educating them and, and asking the question because yeah. more often than not, they, they just won't. Yeah. You know, so. And that was about including the family 
as a part of the education mm. as well as the community yeah. and then working with the clubs more closely um, to make sure that the environment was safe um, and they felt sort of I guess a degree of vulnerability mm. so they could open up and, and be themselves to a certain extent yeah. and to help you know develop resilience and those types of things. Yeah. I was just going to mention and sticking around with the idea of rugby and vulnerability because mm. what you're describing is quite a vulnerable space to be in to disagree with your boss or yeah. disagree with your peers right straight away you're putting yourself out there that's right. vulnerable for most yeah. people that's not what we want you know intuitively we don't want to be feel vulnerable Although with the Brenny Brown work, we all now know the mm -hmm. vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. Mm -hmm. However, when you then overlay a very male culture yeah. like rugby yeah. into that context of discussion, yeah. so asking young rugby players to be vulnerable, which is a very strength-based game mm. yeah. on many levels yeah. of fortitude of mind as well as body, right? Yeah. And now you're asking them to show what they think is weakness. Yeah. How do you manage that? Yeah, it's, it's really tough. I mean, jeepers, if you go back further enough, you, New Zealand was effectively founded on farming, rugby and war, which are like yeah. three of the most sort of masculine things. But I think um, it, it comes down to sort of some of the key sort of influences and role models within the game, leaders that have, are not afraid to like sort of step up and say something. So in terms of like Groove, when you look at Sir John Kerwin, yeah. one of the founders, like um, he didn't know what he was experiencing back in the day. So he wouldn't say anything about it because mm. it wasn't good to to sort of say anything but now he's um, absolutely open and honest and vulnerable mm. and he shares his feelings and I think it starts with sort of those kinds of people mm. um, to sort of plant that seed yeah. and then for the likes of the organisation like New Zealand Rugby to get around them to support them and to sort of amplify that across sort of you know programs and strategies mm. to make sure that it gets to the players that we need and we're seeing like um, you know current All Blacks sort of stepping up as well and sharing their own experiences and thoughts mm. on, on vulnerability which is hugely important too so it's a work in progress and yeah. you know, we've still got a long way to go but as long as sort of those leaders are, are prepared to step up and share their story and then hopefully young players coming through the system can identify with that and know that it's okay and then the sport can support yeah. them then um, you know they'll make better, better decisions. Mm. Do you yeah. agree? I do, I completely agree with yeah, having Sir John Cohen's such a great example and he's been doing this for you know a couple of decades now sharing his story and yeah. I think too it's how people respond when a story is shared, which is the second part of it. So people can see someone speaking up, but if they perceive that that doesn't land well, they, they won't be likely to follow suit. But if they know someone speaks up and is vulnerable and people warm to it or start sharing their own story, they can see what the benefits of doing so are. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And in terms of the leadership focus that you have, that yeah. you prove and aiming at the leaders to try and create conditions yeah. for that vulnerability and, and literacy around mental health and well-being. Is there a, a, a gender balance there that mm. you're seeing or disbalance? Or? It is interesting. You would think it would be females more comfortable sharing their story, but I think mm. because because in our organisation particularly, John Kerwin is there and he shares his story. Right. That from the outset, it's kind of built in. Uh, with some of our customers, I think the same thing applies. Like they see John Kerwin doing it and they may be more likely to do it themselves. Mm. But we also let them know how important it is. So we invite them to share their story to the extent that they're comfortable doing. And often it takes a little bit of practice and a little bit of time. And you know, you can only share your story if you feel trusted, um, you feel that you're in a trusted environment. So sometimes it takes a little bit of time to build that up. Okay. We measure it as well. So we run a range of different questionnaires with teams uh, before they start the program to see where things might not quite be 
um, running smoothly. So um, ah. internally okay. at Groove, we've just run our own um, psychological safety survey to see you know, where we're doing really well and where some of our weak points are. And some of the strong ones where 92% of our team agree that they can be vulnerable without any kind of repercussions. Ah. So that's a really strong, that's a really strong yeah. um, win for us. So you benchmark <coughs> these yes, indicators exactly, yeah. of health and well-being or mental health and well-being yeah, yeah. within organisations And then well. you can see how what you're doing works, you know, whether it shifts Makes those sense. things. And it's yeah, anonymous, so people can be truly honest. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it, it's obvious now you've said it, mm. but it's like, oh, yeah, of course you need to benchmark mm. and know where you're starting from and where you're achieving. And people are paying for our service and products, so if they yeah. don't know that there's an impact you know, mm. then why would they reinvest? So it's, it's partly, you know, absolutely the, the first survey is around baselining, but also diagnosis. Mm. <laughs> and then we know that we can focus on the areas that are going to make the most difference for, yeah. the, that, for that business particularly. And then we can survey again at the end and see where the shift is. After a year of doing that or working within our organisation, what has surprised you the most? Or has there been any kind of, oh, <laughs> didn't think about that? And it might be a positive or a negative, but yeah. of this space as a whole. It might not be to do with the organisation, but just this mental health and wellbeing space. I think um, a couple of things. It's it's hard. It's hard to embed a culture of wellbeing because people are so busy and yeah. we want to do so much. So having the boundaries and respecting our own boundaries and respecting others' boundaries can be really challenging when yeah. there's a lot to be done. So um, putting in place practices that support that whilst also recognising that we're a business that has high ambitions and other businesses are businesses that have high ambitions mm. is, is challenging. So it definitely takes a lot of work. Um, uh, there was another point I was going to make around a really good thing that we've noticed. That's the one thing that we have been talking about very much recently is uh, in the past there's often been this uh, mismatch. People think that if you focus too much on wellbeing, you let performance kind of drop by the wayside. Okay. So how do we, how do we, if we focus too much on performance, then care drops by the wayside. Yeah. And one of the things that we've been working through lately is how do we support customers to focus on both at the same time? And the interesting thing is most of the activities that you would do inside an organisation to s support a culture of care kind of by default support performance um, and are really like things like strong communication, having a mission and vision really well articulated, communicating well, having leaders that care about their people and coach them and give them feedback. Um, these things support both. So well-being and performance actually really clo closely intermeshed and it's been, yeah, it's been really interesting to see that, that um, realisation hit mm. a lot of people lately. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. We actually had um, sort of similar challenges in rugby now around injury prevention because I like an injury prevention to like insurance. Nobody really cares about it until it happens to them. <laughs> so for us it was about kind of changing the perception of injury prevention and making it more focused on performance and being able to educate the players. Like if you follow these tips and guidelines then you're going to perform better as a player kind of a thing. Right. You're likely yeah. to get more buy-in than say if you do these things you're going to prevent injury and that type gotcha. of thing. It's kind of how you sort of um, frame it up in a way that kind of gets the best out of those players or gets yeah. buy-in from those mm. players. So, um, yeah, that's probably one of the bigger challenges that we had in terms of being the ambulance at the, the top of the mm. cliff. How do you sort of change behaviour before it actually happens? And yeah. Well, let's just focus on performance because that's why they're all playing. They want to they play rugby, they want to be with their friends, they want to have fun. Yeah. Okay. What is the support for... I was thinking a comment you made before around rugby players having so much of their identity tied up with being a player uh, yep. and all of the accolades and all of the yep. pressure that comes along with that. When they leave the game, how does that transition happen? Yeah, that's still a huge area that needs um, yeah. a lot of work on. 
Um, but there's a few sort of um, organisations that kind of support with that. So we have the Rugby Players Association mm. that's sort of there for the players and helps with the transition from out of rugby um, back into the communities. Mm. Um, and certainly as a part of their sort of player development plan, it's built into their sort of career path as to what they want right. to do post-rugby kind of a thing. So good kind of maybe two to three years before they sort of transition out of the game or they're thinking about it, they might go and do sort of courses or, mm. or um, okay. get qualifications and the likes to, to sort of help with that transition. Mm. Um, when I was in league, we, um, we used to talk to our young players around kind of uh, the NRL being your plan B. Your plan A mm. is what else you want to do? Is it a trade? Do you want to get a degree? Mm. Um, do you want to own a business? Those types of things. So we had this written into sort of a contract. Uh, for the young players transitioning in, that they needed to do something alongside of their rugby league, recognising that you know they're not all going to make it, sort of, sort of a thing. Yeah. They've, they've got to have something else to focus on. But the key for us with with that particular program was again including the the families in there, so that they mm. could hear these messages. Because a lot of the pressure um, that young players sort of feel are, uh, are coming from, I guess, an obligation to sort of. Um, support your families mm. when you're actually not in a position to support yourself. And Sir John Kerwin would know all about this as well. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Has there been an issue uh, over the last 20, 30 years, especially around the Pacifica um, uh, yeah. players? And the obviously, if uh, someone from Samoa or, or some other smaller nation yep. suddenly mm. makes it big in the rugby circuit, they can not only support themselves, but their family, like you say, and there's now an expectation of I've got to be in the game for as long as possible because mm. I'm not looking after me anymore. Yeah. Looking after my family. Yep. Which happens across industries and mm. sectors, not yeah. just rugby, yeah, yeah. of course, but this is a high-profile uh, industry, rugby, right? And yep. to step out of that, not just the financial support, and into a thing, that must be hard. Yeah, and totally. And then you've also... Um, I guess you've got that, an obligation for a young Pacifica player to the church as well, so not just to the family and the community, but, but the church. So they want to give back. That's sort of a, a, an innate value for them. Mm. Um, but then the question becomes, how could they give back? Rather than giving back everything, let's give back something. Yes. Okay. And then let's okay. also sort of look after yeah. yourself. Fascinating. So that's the kind of uh, way we sort of frame it up. Do you see any similarities between your time in the military and any pre preparedness coming out of the military? Because I know some military organisations do help with that transition a lot, mm -hmm. while others are still kind of trying to work on it. Yep. Did you get any kind of transitional help? Um, I was pretty clear in my own mind as to what I wanted to do. Like okay. I, um, yeah, again, I sort of achieved all the things that I wanted to uh, within the military. So you know, got to travel and go mm -hmm. on operations and, mm -hmm. and things like that, which I really loved. And I was at a point in my career where. I was either going to stay in and, and be a full-on um, sort of serviceman, mm -hmm. or uh, I was going to follow my passion, which was around that sort of health and fitness side yeah, of things. So you, which you which had a north star. Transitioned and went to university. University was so easy after uh, being in the military. <laughs> Is Honestly, right? yeah, you do a few years in the military, you go to uni, it's a breeze. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. A little tip for everybody out there: yeah. <laughs> in the military before doing the uni or your masters. Did you do an MBA? Yeah, yeah, yeah I did an MBA. It was a um, uh, so I did the undergrad in, in, in sports science and then did uh, postgrad in project management mm. and then got sucked into doing the MBA. But no, 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 that was good. I loved it. Eh? Yeah. It was such a great course. Um, um, I would say that the, the sort of the key thing for me with the MBA was that it had um, brought in my networks. So I, right. I now have a group of friends that yeah. are like a, sort of doctors and lawyers and yeah. scientists and chief executives and likes. And we're all still closely connected now. Awesome. So that connection piece and yeah. stepping outside of sort of uh, the military as well as sports and mm. having this other group that is so diverse. Because really you learn more from 
uh, your cohort than what you do from anything right. else. So, yeah. yeah. Are you finding that when you're doing your um, kind of, although mine's more, we come together only for a week, so the program's not okay. as intensive as doing an MBA. It's a bit more kind of at your own pace, in your own way. Gotcha. Yeah. A bit more spread out. It is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, which, yeah. Cool. Mm. So what are you going to be when you grow up, and both of you? <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had that thought when you're older? I yeah, no. <laughs> Do you know? Because I'm trying to figure it out. I'm yeah. going to steal ideas or something. Yeah, I'm taking notes. Yeah, I think I, I don't think about things that far in advance. For me, I think about the next few steps rather than, mm. you know, something too far in the future. And Clever. Yeah, and I think, though, what I have realised over the years is doing work that aligns with my own personal values is so important. And I don't think I... I didn't even know that I was doing work that wasn't in line with my values. just mm. knew that it didn't quite feel right. And then as soon as I worked out what they were and then started being more proactive about and intentional about choosing opportunities that we're aligned sure, just yeah. makes a big difference in terms of being able to get up there excited every day right yeah totally yeah, yeah. Mm. you've had some fun in terms of looking at your linkedin both of your linkedins are fun just like looking at the weaves and uh, the things <laughs> yeah. you've done and um, like i remember meeting you in tedx christchurch mm. our connection mm -hmm. was right. first made um, and then obviously became friends and then watching you bounce around these mm. different awesome organizations, similar roles, right? Mm. Kind of in that HR chief people officer role, like for tech companies. Yeah. Right? I think when we first met, you were still working maybe in, uh, um, what's that clothing brand? Icebreaker. Thank you. Or you were just transitioned out, something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. So. But now this is more aligned. You feel like a better fit. I think so. Yeah. And I think, you know, even if I wasn't at Groove, I think what I am learning and doing there means I can take that whole mindset with me to any other mm. kind of organisation that I work with. So, That's so cool. yeah, it's, it's pretty special. It's a pretty special place mm. with really you know, passionate people. I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky in my career to have had opportunities to have, you know, meet people like you. Like the, the TEDx network is amazing. What you're talking about with the MBA network, TEDx is like that as well, yeah. where we learn from each other and you just get exposure to people from all over the world and their ideas and the way that they think. And then you just have a chat with them and they're just normal people because often you see people on the stage talking and you think that person is so unbelievable. I could never <laughs> imagine being able to do that. And then you yeah. chat with them and they're just normal people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's inspiring. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So what questions do you have? For, I, I've been leading the questions too much. So I'm going to throw it, throw it <laughs> open. What else do you want to talk about? I want to hear about your trip. Oh. Because I think we caught up before you went and two and a half yes. months is a long time to it be is. away. And, it is actually. And it's a long time that you, before you had been able to travel. So yeah, what yes. have you learned from that? And so yes, I was away for two and a half months, I haven't been away for three years, I haven't been back to Wales in three years, mm. the land, the vistas, the people, and I've learned that I like travelling. Mm. Like I had big anxiety before I left, yeah. I was quite anxious for some reason, I was like, oh man. And I had to remind myself constantly that I've been around the world a few times, done five continents, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, you know, this is not a unique experience mm. to go this far. And then I tried to tie into that as much as possible from an, an experiential perspective of doing things I haven't done or being places I haven't done. There were certain things I wanted to do that I've done before, like yeah. visit people in certain places. Yeah. But yeah, little random trips to like Germany or certain parts of Switzerland or Belgium yeah. or certain parts of Scotland, which I haven't been to, were just like delightful. <laughs> and I, it filled my spirit. 
Yeah. It did, really did. And I came back kind of going, I want to do it again, mm-hmm. you know? And the world feels so much smaller after you do those things. Yeah. So much smaller. Mm. Although my flat seems so big, I came <laughs> back to my flat and was like, it's massive. Why have I got a flat? Why am I living in so much space? Which is odd. But yeah, the, the, I've probably had more hugs in the past two and a half months than I've had in three years. Mm. Yeah. And that is, to, as you know, I'm a hugger. And, mm. you know, so you, that was big for me, yeah. getting back to that kind of yeah. physicalness. Uh, but uh, I just had a delightful, my, one of my favorite experiences was my Switzerland adventure, which was, I like this poet called Reina Maria Rilke, and I tweet about him often and share a lot of stuff. And he's just a very metaphysical poet and quite down on himself, bless him. But he speaks to my kind of side of thinking. And uh, I did a really random trip to do with Rilke, which is that for years I've, I've been speaking to a random museum in a place called Winterthur, which is in the northeast of Switzerland, because they have a bust of Rilke yeah. made by this German-Austrian kind of guy called Fritz Hoof. And I found it online and I tracked down where it was. And they like, look, it's in our private collection. It's not owned by us, but we got it. And it's not, in, it's not out. It's just in our archives. And then three years later, I'm now going to Europe and I'm going, can I come and have a look? And they were so nice. They set up a private viewing for me. Oh, wow. So now I find myself traveling from Munich on a train down to Winterthur, like two and a half hours just into Switzerland. And I'm getting up early in the morning to go to this museum at 10 a.m. And I'm outside on Sunday morning and I go in and I get shown into this room and I get left with this bronze bust of Rilke. Now, this is stupid in terms of like, <laughs> why would you do that? It's just because I love this guy. But that's where it starts in terms of like, I spent an hour there just writing some stuff, being inspired. Mm. And I jumped on a train now to go to the south of Switzerland to a place called Raron, which is deep in the Swiss Alps. Another like three hours on a, on a, on a uh, train and you go through the Alps in terms of like 25 minutes in a tunnel and you come out in the middle of the Alps and he just opens up it's like oh, it's wow. so beautiful and Raron is nowhere in terms of like you wouldn't go there unless you want to go there you know as you change at some random place called Vesp don't know just change there and kind of kick on and um, I go to Raron because that's where Rilke's buried the oh. poet that I just yep. saw the bust yeah. of right and it's a bit of a walk up this mad like thing to a, a beautiful church on the top of this big rock spur and it looks out over the Swiss Alps, this valley, and you're like, of course you're buried. You're a poet. <laughs> you want a vista like this. Of course you are. And I sat there for two hours and then I nearly missed my train back to Basel, which is in the northwest of, of Switzerland, and spent my time walking the Rhine there, which is a river. And it's really unique because you walk uh, about four hours in a, like a bit of a ring, up one side, back the other side. But Basel's really odd and wonderful because you walk up the side of the river into France because it's on the border, oh, yeah. right? So you literally walk, and it's just a sign that says, welcome to France in French, right? <laughs> and you, right. Mm, uh, merci, you know, up there. <laughs> and then you walk across a bridge to the other side of the Rhine and you w- walk across the bridge into Germany. So now I'm in Germany after being in France. Now I'm walking down and I walk back into Switzerland. Wow. Right? <laughs> All in like this three and a half hours, you know, four hours, like wow. little journey. Uh, and just things like that yeah. just fill my spirit yeah. with kind of like uniqueness and smiles yeah. and silliness of why would you do that? 
because it's unique and awesome. <laughs> so that to me is my favorite. Very cool. One of my favorites. Yeah. I want to travel now. Yeah. Yeah, you get that wanderlust, <laughs> right? And you go, yeah. oh, I want to try weird and wonderful yeah. things. There. And it means so much to me. No, that would have meant nothing to no one. Yeah. But it was a very highly personal experience yeah. going back this time. And yeah, yeah. it was uh, filled my spirit and my heart for sure. Where did you, you mentioned before with the military you'd traveled. Yeah. Where, where did you get to go anywhere um, interesting that you'd want to visit again? Yeah, so I spent some time um, attached to the British reg- uh, one oh, of the yeah. British regiments, and we went to to Bosnia. Um, so spent a bit of time there, but sort of down by the coast, there's, there's an island um, uh, called Brak 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 I think it is. So it's not sort of far from like Croatia and the likes, but the coastline around that mm. part of the world is. It's amazing, it's sublime. I'd love to go back there on a more recreational visit. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely one place I'd love to go back to, a sort of like around kind of Croatia and along mm. the coast and sort of the other islands again around there. Beautiful place, like mm. it is so epic. Um, but you don't realise sort of how big those those places and the mm. countries are and how you can just drive through different countries or mm. walk through countries. And, you know, we're so far away from everyone and we're so yeah. small. And like I think for me, like in my experience with travelling, that's, that's kind of... So one thing that kind of came to light, but then it also made me appreciate home all that much yeah. more yeah. than coming back, which is quite sure. I love traveling, but it makes me appreciate NZ yeah. a whole lot more. Yeah, same, yeah. What's weird in Europe, right, you can bounce around really quickly yeah. and on trains, yeah. you're so interconnected. Yeah. And the mad thing, I went to Belgium for a week and I got to Belgium all on a train, but from South Wales. So I dropped on a train literally in the valleys of South Wales where my parents live, mm-hmm. and seven and a half hours I'm stepping off a train in Brussels. And it's like, yeah. yeah, I had to change in Cardiff and London, yeah. but that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's an yeah. experience you just sit and relax in because it's so connected. You know, yeah. I go through Lille in France as well, and, yeah. and boom, now I'm in Brussels mm. hanging out. It's so connected yeah. and small. And close. If you were in Bosnia around that, was it at the end of the Bosnian? Yeah, it was after, so we were in peacekeeping. Peacekeeping. Yeah, more like right. a stabilisation force mm. yeah, gotcha. for um, NATO. Yeah, mm. and then... Um, and then East Timor, did East Timor before I went to university, yeah. actually. So, and that was with the New Zealand uh, Defence Force. I was over there and loved that trip as well. Mm. Both very different. Mm. Um, one was with the British and one was with mm. the New Zealand Defence Force. But loved them both. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. Is there places you've been? You've done uh, a mad uh, El Camino walk, didn't I you? Have. I have. I've done a few. This is in Spain. Have you heard of this walk? No. It's a, it's a Catholic pilgrimage. Um, and my grandmother is Catholic and she had high hopes when I left that I may come back converted, but <laughs> I didn't. Um, but I still had an amazing, amazing trip. And I would go back and do it again in a heartbeat. There's several, so the, the remains of St. James, who's an apostle of Jesus, are yep. buried in Santiago de Compostela. And there's various routes that start um, in other parts of Europe and you walk there and it's an epic pilgrimage and there's wow. villages set up around um, that whole walk. And so this it's very well serviced and there's places to eat along the way and you meet people and... Yeah, I did it by myself, but you meet lots of different people as you walk through. So wow. you can do part, portions of the. You can walk do portions, yeah, exactly. Well. And did I did you do one the whole from, thing. Or? I did do the whole thing. Yeah, wow. it was after my dad died, and yeah. he um, he died suddenly of a heart attack when he was sixty-one. So very young, um, mm. very unexpected, and. Uh, he always used to say to me when I was struggling with something to go for a walk. And about three months after he died, I thought, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still finding this really hard. So I decided to go for a walk and yeah. just had a beautiful, amazing trip um, yeah. in Spain. So How long did that take you? It was 26 days. I was on a timeline. It was 26 days. So it was 30 something K a day that I was walking um, yeah, through. That's impressive. Yeah, it was wow. great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What did you learn from that experience? 
Um, I think taking the time. I think one of the things for me that I realised not being a religious person is I don't have a ritual around something like death. So mm. I had to create my own ritual around death yeah. and how I... Um, how I want to remember my dad and what are the and creating space to be able to do that because I, it's so interesting in society that we get three days off when people die and then we're expected yep. to go back and carry on with life mm. but when people close to you pass away it's you know it shifts things quite significantly so yeah I mean I left with a very I felt very close to my dad and I remembered lots of stories about my dad and so I think just having that time um, and there was this one Ukrainian man that walked a section with me and he was this older guy and he was very smelly and he did, was quite gruff and he didn't really want to talk but he insisted on walking with me and then he, he turned off a little bit earlier than me and before he left he said, I think your dad would be really proud of you and I oh. thought, oh, just hearing someone yeah. say that was, mm-hmm. yeah, it was really beautiful. So That was wow. emotional, yeah. It was very emotional, yeah. yeah. And so, I've, yeah, anytime when I'm have been going through struggles, I'll, you know, just head off somewhere and get into some nature and do some walking. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Would you do any of the other kind of pilgrimage walking? Uh, I would do any of them. (laughs) I love them, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I'd I'd love to do the New Zealand one as well, Te Right. Yeah, Yeah. from the top to the bottom. To the south, right? Yeah. How long would that take you? I I think it's four months, four or five months. Oh, right. It's It's a big commitment. It's pretty hard to squeeze into, you know, three weeks a year (laughs) vacations. Yeah. But I do think with um, having a business from New Zealand that's global, which is when I look back through my career, that's been something that's been important to me is mm. working for a New Zealand company yeah. going to the world yeah. because you get the opportunity to travel and you get an opportunity to bring New Zealand to the world, but learn you know, the other way around as well yeah. Yeah. Um, in a way that you wouldn't if you just focused on the New Zealand market. So, yeah, yeah mm. I love that. Yeah, I love the reputation that we have around the world. Like, yeah. uh, so earlier this year, I got to go to like New York and uh, Dubai and Saudi Arabia as part of a trade sort of uh, trip it was an amazing experience mm. what it did tell us was two things we've we're so far away yeah. <laughs> from everyone and everything takes time in terms of exporting but in terms of opportunities there's loads of them mm. um, but people's perception of New Zealand and um, yeah it's pretty it's not until you go overseas when you meet these people and you realize yeah. that actually we come from a pretty good place so yeah. it's, it's quite humbling and you feel more grateful for coming yeah. from from here yeah. yeah like the distance is always the challenge right yeah. and yeah. the timelines because the of that or the timings yeah. as yeah. well because we're usually out of a lot yeah. of people's timings so yeah. it is a challenge yeah, right? yeah totally. especially with a physical product yeah. versus maybe a virtual product right you're a waitlist thing yeah that's yeah. right this is a physical thing yeah, yeah. are you thinking of you know this can only be produced here right yeah unless you ship the raw ingredients yeah. over to be put mm. together somewhere else yeah and those are the types of questions that we're sort of grappling with at mm. the moment um, okay so I think it was, when I was in Dubai it was um, 75 days it was taking a, um, a container uh, to get from the NZ up to Dubai and then I was sitting at port for another two weeks and then you know another two weeks before it's actually in the sort of retail store so and with that type of product you can't really have it sitting around for too long surely no it's, we've got a best before of a year kind of a thing so okay. that, that all kind of adds up okay um so we are kind of like looking at sort of um potentially transporting it in, in um the raw ingredients up and, mm. and bottling in market which again reduces the transportation of mm. say glass for example because it is a glass product so it uses less energy something and a bit more sustainable um otherwise so yeah. Lots of things to consider because we, we still need to make sure that we're true to our values as well. Like, um, yeah. can you still call it a precious gift from New Zealand if it's using water from another country? Don't know. Mm. Might be a bit of a stretch. 
good point. Mm. Yeah. And how much manuka is there? Like, <laughs> how, how constrained is that resource? Mm. There's loads at yeah. the moment of manuka, honey. There's, there's a backlog of it around the world and in NZ. So I think typically we, we export, uh, I think it's around sort of 3,000 tonnes and there's like 20,000 in the country right now. Oh, wow. But I mean, like, this really, it really speaks to the power of the local story. So the beekeeper is, is a school schoolmate of ours. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're never short of honey. Wow. <laughs> so all the honey comes from this? this yeah, from our mate Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Good old Dave. But also, the, um, like, we met doing the iPons thing. Yes. That yeah. was our first connection uh, about the IP stuff around it. And tell us a story about, and you might want to grab a bottle so people can yeah, see, sure. but also the insignias and the designs and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so the um, the Māori motif that's um, that's unique to Waimanukan, it's, it's on every bottle, I don't know if that's in shot, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it's, it's called Henu uh, Nati um, and translated it means um, the creative processes used to make Waimanuka. And it was made for us from a, a renowned uh, Māori tāmoko artist um, named Cuts Mahi is his name. And he's at the level where he, he did all the design work for America's Cup and he did design work for the 2011 uh, Rugby World Cup. So that's kind of where he sits. And he did this for us and um, it's basically a, an acknowledgement to the bees really and their relationship with nature and mm. producing honey. Um, and so that's part of our um, kind of um, uh, part of the value proposition for Waimanaka too, because we really wanted to sort of weave in the, the sort of cultural element. And, yeah. um, and then um, we probably haven't done as good a job as communicating that with, with people around what it is and so what it stands for. So uh, in our latest kind of batch, we've put a QR code on it, which, which goes straight to sort of like the provenance story so that people can right. find a bit more oh, about this and kind of what it means. So, that's clever. Yeah. Because you're right, yeah, not a lot of people would understand the significance of these types of designs. Mm. You no. say, oh, that's nice, it looks mm. native. Yeah. And they, that's where they would stop, but actually yeah. there's a deeper story behind it. Yeah, yeah, and that sort of yeah. came to light when uh, I was in Dubai, so pretty much every product in Dubai that's on the shelf has got a QR code, so mm. it sort of planted the seed no. for that and yeah. kind of brought it into, into Waimanaka. And we're all literate around QR codes right, now. We yeah. know <laughs> it takes you somewhere or you can record something on it, so yeah, yeah. that's clever. Yeah. Yeah, um, at Icebreaker when I was there, so this would have been about 12 years ago, we had a bar code, B-A-A code, and yeah. it took, took you to the farms where the garment that you were wearing was made, and oh, they were videos, so you got to meet the farmers and understand their story and why they were in business, and mm. that was way before it was a thing that people did, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a... It's something special though, right? Yeah. Like you're wearing something or you're drinking something and you know who's influenced it yeah. and whose lives you're you know, contributing to by, yeah, by, yeah. by having purchased it. It's deepening that story. Yeah. And, and even some things you buy now, you can say it's packaged by, and it's like a name on it. Yeah. Someone's obviously been stamped. Mm. Well, con consumers are asking the question now around yeah. so that traceability component. I, mean, I read a, um, yeah. a research article the other week, I just glanced at it, and one of the things, can, it was a mental one, I think, mental research. And one of the things they found looking at kind of the consumption of non-alcoholic beverage was people want to understand sort of the world in me was mm. was the phrase that they use. So, not only is this product going to bring joy to myself, but kind of where did it come from? Mm. How was it made? How did it get here? Kind of thing. All yeah. of these questions and what what impact does my purchasing um, decision have on sort of uh, the world? Kind of a thing mm. from a sustainability and um, ethical sort of standpoint. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I read a book called Cradle to Cradle. Again, it was about fifteen years ago. Do you know this mm. book? Yeah. And the guy who did a great TED talk yeah, on it. Yeah, and I read it, 
and then I remember going to the supermarket and I was so paralyzed about what to buy now. Right. Because I, you know, you care about this stuff. It's raised your awareness and you know what's going to happen if you, you know, buy things that are wasteful. Yeah. Mm. So having it made easy for you is, yeah, yeah. it's a huge gift, I think. It is. Yeah. yeah. I do find that a lot at the moment, the cognitive dissonance going on in my brain, the fight going yeah. on constantly with... You know, there are products, there are people in the world mm. that I love and doing great things and are trying to heal the world mm. and all this other stuff versus then some of the just the like downright scariness of you <laughs> read like, okay, you know, people are struggling to put heat on back in the UK at the moment, yes. which is a big freeze, but the people who produce the gas and things are turning over the biggest profits yeah. ever and you're mm. like, eh, the world seals not connected right. enough yeah. to the problem and the cause and yeah. everything else. Yeah. Um, so I feel like really torn yeah. when you go to these, yeah, like you say, even the supermarkets, try to find, exactly. find good ethical things and then going, yeah, but I really want that chocolate. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's, that's my favourite well. flavour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, chocolate what, manuka. Yeah, yeah. There you, go. you never know. There you go, collab, I reckon, eh? Yeah. 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 A, um, don't, don't, there's this um, podcast called uh, Stuff You Should Know. Don't ever listen to the Where Did Cage Free Eggs Come From. Oh, okay. Uh, don't do that. Don't do that. Right. Yeah, okay. Right. Right. So I like my eggs. I like, oh, my God. Well, now I'm asking myself every time I go to the eggs. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I wanted to come back to something you said earlier, though, just to get your take on it. And it might be a political question. So forgive me if you just go, oh, I can't go too much into it. Because I appreciate, you know, sometimes you can't. But uh, I was back in Wales, obviously, a couple of months ago, and a couple of my mates are friends with some of the ex-Welsh players. Yep. And they were talking about their their kind of their their court cases that are coming up uh, yep. regarding their 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 mental not mental health. Mm. It's to do with their brain health. Yes. Because yeah. now it's coming out that <coughs> rugby players weren't as protected as they should have been. Yeah. They weren't like obviously taught about this constant uh, low-level concussion mm. issues. Some of them had bigger concussions and yeah. stuff. And now they're presenting with, you know, onset dementia at much yeah. earlier age and stuff like that. So the brain damage mm. that rugby is now being... It, it's having its moment, like a few years ago, the uh, the NR, no, the N, NFL. NFL, oh yeah, the billion had dollar... Had the concussion... Issues yeah. with people. Will Smith. Yeah. 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 What, what do you? What's your take on all that at the moment? Um, terrible that those things have happened. Great mm. that it's brought it into the light. Mm. Yeah. Um, I would say that the the international because body of research is still uh, in its infancy days. So, yeah. and a lot of what's happened, unfortunately, has been sort of sensationalised. Not downplaying it because there is a connection with some players, but the challenge we've got is like um, concussion is so subjective. So we could, you and I could receive similar blows, right. get concussed, but have completely different rehab paths, you know, okay. with completely different health outcomes. Mm. And because of that, it makes it a very complex and um, injury to deal with. And it's mm. an injury that actually, when you look at it from an ecological model, it's not just the individual, it's also the, the coach, it's also the referee, it's, it's other players, it's families, it's, right. it's medical professionals, it's the community kind of thing. It's a, it's a whole of community approach, like looking at sort of a, a well-being, mm. sort of a holistic mm. model. Uh, and any change that requires that level of engagement and buy-in is, is going to take time, as well yeah. as the research to support it. I think we're on the right track, and if, if anything, it's kind of um, it's brought it to the fore so that we can do something about it. We are doing something about it, but it's going to take a, 
a lot more time sort of a yeah. thing. There's some exciting research that's happening right now as well around sort of preventing concussion and recognising it. Mm. Still got a long way to go though. Yeah. So yeah. Even the rules of rugby has changed so much in the last, mm -hmm. you know, 10, 20, 30 years yeah. to, to lower the level of that concussion. But the counter argument of that is players are getting bigger. The, they're getting more intense, yeah. the impact. You yeah. know, it might not be rocking out now like they used to and, yeah. you know, mm. being literally hit in the head. When yeah. thing. But nowadays the impact is much higher and you don't have to be hit in the head to have concussion as I understand no. it yeah, as well. So yeah. there's lots of other factors. But it's just, like you say, it's complexity. Yeah, yeah. complexity. And I think the other important thing to, to realise too is that because it's happening in rugby, it gets way more of a profile. So if we were to look into like the ACC injury stats around concussion, we'd probably see that more people get concussed opening up their dryer in the morning every year in New Zealand than, right. than playing rugby. Mm. But because it is rugby, it, it does have that kind yeah. of, um, does get the light sort of shined on it. Um, I, again, I think it's a good thing because I think rugby's in a good position to do something about it and to mm. lead the world, not only in rugby, but across sport and potentially uh, community-wide. Yeah, exactly, yeah. especially Grassroots, right? Because yeah. you don't want kids getting that yeah. high level. Which they don't anymore because they have non-contact stuff. And, yeah, to, yeah. A, to a certain age it's, it's non-contact. But um, the biggest challenge for the community game is you're dealing with around about 200,000 volunteers. Right. It's easy to implement change at the professional level because you know, you've got those players mm. all the time, full time. But when you're dealing with a group of volunteers, that's players included, and there's 200,000, you know, again, that, that yeah. takes time. So, yeah. Fascinating area mm. to keep an eye on, right? Absolutely. It's like, yeah, yeah. we'll kick it off. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, leadership. I'd love to get your take because we have a lot of leaders coming through the Creative Wally process mm. and I always steal ideas from them. So <laughs> it's blatant, like, I want to learn from you as much as, you know, anything else. So from a perspective of leadership, both in your respective roles, what do you think makes a good leader and how do you mm. kind of move forward in that? What's your leadership philosophy mm. as well? What do you think? For me, it starts from a position of caring about people and if I think about the great leaders that I've had or, or leaders that I admire, it's they, those who show that they really care about their people. They know them, they know their family, they know what they want to do, they know their values, they know where they want to take their career. So I think that as a foundation is really important. Um, I think too, having clarity about um, where, if it's at an organisation, where the organisation's going and kind of providing that bridge between the organisation goals and individual goals, so helping just reduce the noise. Um, mm. Feedback, giving ongoing feedback to people. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we at Groove, we are often, uh, JK brings in a lot of rugby yeah. um, coaching analogies, so coaching's a really strong piece of leadership at Groove. Yeah. Um, and I love that. I love yeah. it because it, if you've been in a business, like I've been working in businesses for 20 something years, mm. it's really easy to get quite just locked into that way of thinking. So having other influences outside of the business sphere is really, really valuable. Yeah, um, yeah I think those, like, those are the main, the main things mm. that I see. I think, yeah, I think it's, it's not easy and I think each person needs to be led in a different way, but having yeah. some kind of core principles is helpful. Definitely. You agree? Yeah, totally. hundred um, percent. Yeah, for me, I would say that it's about sort of um, uh, being guided by your own personal values and staying true to your values uh, and then having a growth mindset and um, knowing that over time those values and the priorities will change um, and, and just being prepared to be courageous enough to um, 
live those values despite it mm. bringing up some sort of challenges. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can still like have a, um, a courageous conversation with someone and as long as you're respectful, you can still leave mm -hmm. upholding each other's mm -hmm. manner like what you spoke with before. So I think the important thing for leaders these days is to actually really live their values, have that growth mindset. And um, again, yeah, the world, the world needs more people who mm -hmm. care. Like, uh, you know, off the back of grappling with COVID, people want to feel as though, as feel like they're safe and yeah. that they can engage. And the only way they're going to feel safe is if you have a leader who actually cares about them. Mm. It's a relationship, hey? Like it's yeah. one of the closest relationships you will have. Yeah. Really mm. influential on your day-to-day, -day, you know, day -to what you're doing day-to-day, -day, your, your mood, your mm. ability to achieve your goals. And yeah. yeah. Mm. How about you? What have you... What have For you me, I've... I always come back to the idea of servant, lead, servant mm. leadership, mm. if you know that phrase yeah. and that idea of as a leader you're serving those who you are leading versus they yeah. are serving you. Yeah. Right. And I like that kind of shift in lens and language around, oh, I'm, I'm a leader in position, mm. in authority, whatever it is, but yes, I'm helping those flourish beneath me. Mm. Yeah. And I think, yeah, good leaders always create better leaders. Mm or other leaders yeah. in the yeah, organizations. Yeah. Um, and I've seen probably like each around the table here, I've seen really cases of bad leadership, mm. you know, that control methodology mm. of approach. I'm not saying that sometimes you do need to maybe be a bit firm and tap the table a bit and say, we have to do it this way because of X, Y, and I'll take the hit, right? Yeah. But overall, the best leaders are those who ask you, how do you want to be you know, managed or led? Yeah. I had that experience once, and that was like my best experience as a, as a leader, as someone who was above me, but straight away mm. asked me how I needed to be managed yeah. and how, how can they be for me, the best, bring out the best in mm. me. That's interesting straight away, and that's the servant leadership yeah. mentality, I think, which we, again comes back to care, which you started yeah. with and you yeah. echoed as well. Caring is a superpower. Yeah. You know, If you care about people, if you're kind and graceful in this world, Seriously, you know, you will accelerate. There are definitely outliers and mm. people do things you're like, seriously, how mm. can you get that authority by being a dick? You know, <laughs> let's be honest, there's a few we can point at right now, but overall we need more, we need to champion more of the care, yeah. I think. And having courageous conversations is caring. Yep, Oftentimes is. we shy away from it because it makes us uncomfortable. But if yep. if someone felt like I needed to do something differently or give me feedback, I would so much more prefer they said something to me rather than mm. you know, try to preserve my feelings by yeah. skewing around the issue. So I think Agreed. that for me that was a big realisation was it is caring yeah. to be direct and yeah. to give feedback. It's such a Kiwi thing, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't so like just be it. understated, exactly. go, go with the flow. And yeah. Mm. You can see it at sporting right. games and we mumble our way through the anthem. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's the danger though, isn't it? Because then, yeah. Yeah, because one of my favourite experiences is that, that what maturity brings, which is not thick skinness, but it's like that hunger to hear other people's mm. opinions, yeah. which you can't see of yourself. And when you talked about coaching as a, as a strategy of moving mm -hmm. forward and, and leadership and the stuff that I do around speaker coaching, you have to be critiquing other yep. people. Mm. The trick then is the communication, isn't it? Yeah. Bit of what you are seeing and communicate in a way that's going to be empowering yeah. Yeah. and and nurturing versus defeatist mm -hmm. and yeah. cynicism. Mm. You know, that's the trick. I think it always comes back to the communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I've learned. Yeah, or still trying to learn. 
got uh, Yeah, true. I mean, things Still change. Learn. And then new generations yeah. will come through and there'll be different ways uh-huh. that we need to lead and yeah. things happen in the world that we need to respond to. Well, you brought up courage there. We've asked several times uh, in this <coughs> podcast with other people, like, what does courage look like then? In mm. your respected industries or even you as a personal human who have transitioned through experiences, what's courage for you? Um, it would be like standing up for what you believe and what you right. value kind of thing, but in a way that's respectful. Uh, okay. And again, it comes back to that kind of being values-led and having that growth mindset. If you see something that you don't agree with, mm. uh, it's about having the courage to, to say something or to do something about it in a respectful way or in a way that's appropriate for, for what's happening. The situation. Yeah. Have you had to do that in certain roles? and? Yeah, yeah, yeah. a few times. Um, but I sort of pride myself on my ability to kind of maintain the relationship and the integrity of the relationship first and foremost. Yeah. Um, so yeah, even though I've had to sort of have those conversations and naturally it hasn't sat right, but mm. then you get sort of used to it and you know that at the end of the day, you're making the right call by having this conversation. And, yeah. um, you know, it comes down to like how you sort of feel in your gut kind of a thing, mm. you know, that, that initial instinct. Mm. And, um, you know, if you can act on in a way that's appropriate for the situation, then yeah. You know, you've, you've kind of, again, sort of uphold, upheld the, the manner of that sort of engagement, that mm. conversation, in a way that hopefully delivers on an outcome that everyone can be respectful of. That's cool, man. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. I love that. I love that framing of, you know, upholding the manner of the conversation and the people that are in it. Yeah. And I think we're all imperfect, so we're all going to do things that are not our best selves and recognising that in other people as mm. well and, and having that view, the benefit of the doubt, you know, it may not... They're not being malicious, or yeah. this is just an off day. Go, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, just by your statement, we're all a little bit imperfect. Yeah. yeah. There's an omission there and an embracement of the condition called humanness, right? Mm. We're all humans and we're trying our best to figure this stuff out. Right. I've never met anybody who's figured it all out. Yeah. You know, and there's a reason for that. It's because we're constantly growing and evolving. Yeah. You know, and, and it's fun to think that we're imperfect. But it's also considerate. Right. And you consider other people then. It's like, oh, yeah, I disagree, with, but maybe, you know, I haven't had their experiences mm. and stuff like that. It's tough, though, right? Mm. It is tough. Yeah. Still figuring that shit out. Learning every day. We are, brother. Yeah. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, if you want a side hustle helping um, businesses <laughs> scale, just thinking. There we go. <laughs> Got a pet project. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there could be some collaborations <laughs> definitely going on. No, I, I really admire the entrepreneurial mindset that you have and that lots of leaders of, you know, starting a business is really hard sure. and, you know, pushing through all sorts of obstacles along the way. Like, I really admire that. So thank mm. you for what you're doing and it's providing a really great example for me and for lots of other people about what you can do from New Zealand. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. It's yeah. been amazing to hear your story too and the work that you guys are doing, especially with CJK, yeah. having done some work with him in the past as well. So yeah. really excited by the way. It's much needed. Yeah. And can't wait to see what you do. Yeah, we've got a long way to go, but yeah, yeah on the on the journey for sure. Yeah, yeah. Where's uh, are you looking for investment? Are you in investment cycles or stuff like that? Are you going yeah. down that road? Yeah, we're probably looking towards um, creating a capital capital strategy next year. I think that's right. the next step. We've probably we're highly leveraged at the moment, a lot of debt, and so um, the mm. next step would be pumping in some cash to actually grow yeah. it, sort of a thing. So that'll be next year. We have to decide what I guess the milestones and what mm. we need and by when kind of a thing. Definitely 
capital strategy next year. Mm. That's on the to-do yeah. list. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to know and good to be the audience to be aware if they yeah. keep an eye on things. And what about Groove? What's the next thing for you guys there? Yeah, I mean, we're, we want to grow in Australia as our kind of main target market right. um, size of the population. And we've got, a, we've got some strong customers there already, so that's our big push. Okay. That's our big push for the next six That means setting up an office over there? Yeah, we have um, we have a person over there already, and then right. our New Zealand team supports him. Um, and okay, we've got some that's awesome exciting. Customers. It is exciting, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, the decision after that about where we go was most likely the US, but we're, we're open. Hmm. Mm. Happy fashion. English speaking is important, I think, for us at this stage, and yeah. some kind of cultural... Um, similarities. I know the US is very different to New Zealand, as is Australia actually, mm-hmm. but um, you know, JK's got a presence here and he's got a presence in yeah. Australia which definitely helps us yeah. open yeah. some doors, yeah. um, but it's not the whole job, that's just the door opening really. Yeah. So, yeah. I've always thought that Canada is a missed opportunity oh, yeah. for most uh, yeah. Kiwis thinking about exporting yeah. because of scale of market is, yeah. is massive, it's, it's comparable mm. to lots of other bigger markets, right? Um, it's also one step away from America, so it's right. kind of a nicer test bed. They're nice and polite yeah, people. Nice. They're great <laughs> in Canada. So. Plus, they have First Nations understanding. Yes. Yeah. A much more positive First Nations understanding, I would say, than America. Mm. Yeah. So things like this, I think, would get more traction or some other indigeneity mm. story and things like that. Yeah. And I, it's often confuses me why America is right. the straight route rather than Canada yeah. and then dribble down into America. Yeah. But maybe I'm just being very naive. Mm. Well, to be honest, there's probably half a dozen places in the world where we could play if we wanted to, mm. and we right. had the means to do it. Um, but I, get, I think for us, it's just about being really deliberate and strategic with with where we decide to do that. Yeah. So the whole play on Japan wasn't just based on kind of the relationships in the long term. It, it's it's the fact that it's kind of the gateway into sort of Asia sort of a thing. And yeah. if you can test and prove mm. yourself there, then you can potentially scale into a market where you know, this product will be um, hopefully loved and well received. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a clever move. A clever are you looking move. at other flavors? Yeah, we are. We've got an innovation pipeline. We haven't. Can't we're release that's a top secret for right now, but oh. chocolate being one of them, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things like it would make sense for us to do a still version to complement the sparkling. Yeah, um, and okay. then we could even look at sort of um, playing around with the the, the variation of, of honey to mm. to make kind of a badged sort of mm. um, Manuka honey. Um, Waimanuka range uh, and then of course a- um, adding in sort of berries and, and the likes sort of later on um, lots of ideas um, but we, we know that we've just really got to do one thing really yeah. really well for now that is the challenge isn't it it's saying no to a bunch of stuff to focus and like, oh, get momentum you can't there's so much noise eh? thin, like, yeah. I think that's one of the important things with uh, wanting to be a good leader is you've got to be able to like block out the noise mm. to focus on the few key mm. things that are going to deliver the biggest result mm. yeah and it's not easy no yeah definitely not mm. well thank you both for your time thank you, i'm aware thank you. of your time and don't want to waste too much of it but uh appreciate as well that you're not from around here it's great to have aucklanders together <laughs> in wellington uh, coming to visit so thank you very much Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good to meet you. That was Creative Welly episode 37. Thanks for devoting some time. Check us out at creativewelly.com where we have courageous conversations with bold humans. And you can subscribe to not just the RSS feed there, but also to the email so you can get every post direct into your inbox. We'll be back very, very soon with episode 38. And keep having courageous conversations with bold humans.